You're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. This podcast is a somewhat unusual one in that I'm repurposing a sermon that I preached on Sunday, October 18th, 2020, at St. Margaret's Church in Winnipeg. It was their Consecration Sunday. That's a, that's a model of stewardship. Replacing the old stewardship or offering Sunday comes as part of a, a larger consideration of the whole question of how we use our money, what responsibility we have to our community, how we think of what we hold in our hands. And in the Consecration Sunday model, you have an outside preacher come and speak to the congregation. Well, as I began the sermon, I, I teased them a little bit about that. There was, oh, I don't know, a smallish gathering actually there in the building, and then an extended gathering virtually through their live stream. And I teased them a little bit about this model of having an outside preacher come in as if you just sort of relieve the rector of any responsibility of talking about money. But then I quickly commented that neither the rector, David Whittacombe, nor the vicar, Bonnie Dowling, are ever shy of preaching on just about anything. And that, in fact, I I knew that they had spoken to this issue in the two Sundays prior. And then I launched in. Now, the text for the week was that famous question that some Pharisees, along with a group of Herodians, come to Jesus in an attempt to trap him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So let's go to today's gospel text, which provides a remarkable sort of platform for talking about money, allegiances, priorities, regardless of what Sunday it might be preached. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, saying, sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, pause there, just note, who it is that wants to entrap Jesus. There are members of the Pharisaic movement who send their disciples, along with the Herodians, the Herodians being those Judeans who are loyal to King Herod, who is himself a clear collaborator with the Roman Empire. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are not supporters of either Herod or Caesar, though they have learned to walk a carefully balanced line in relationship to the occupying empire and its forces. These two groups would normally have had little or no respect for one another, yet they've been drawn together by their shared distaste for Jesus, for what he's been teaching. So they launch into a potted speech that Robert Capon describes as a bit of unctuous flattery about Jesus' reputation for truth-telling and his independence of mind. 
It is just the first salvo in their little scheme to get him to answer their cagey question, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Well, you heard how it unrolled from there. Jesus quickly catches on to their intent, pushes back, calls them hypocrites, and asks for one of the coins used for taxes, and then famously asks the question, whose head, whose title? The coin designated for tax payment to the empire was the denarius. That's Roman currency, local currency being rather below the tastes of the empire. That coin carried on an image of the emperor Tiberius and an inscription that read, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Whose image is on the coin, he asked them. They answered, the emperor's. Jesus said to them, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. They left him and went away. The payment of tax to the emperor was an utterly distasteful thing for the vast majority of Judeans, the Herodians notwithstanding. You're paying with a coin that has a graven image imprinted on it, already a problem for a Jew. Those words about Tiberius being son of Augustus, who had declared himself divine, doubly problematic. Your taxes supported the occupying empire, which in that part of the world was under the rule of Pontius Pilate, a procurator so notoriously violent that at one point he was actually summoned back to Rome to account for his behavior. But, as Warren Carter has noted, (coughs) pardon me, as Warren Carter has noted, an imperial tax can be paid without the payment being a vote of support for Rome or its ethos. Taxes paid to Rome acknowledge Rome's political power, full stop. Beyond that full stop are what Jesus calls the things that are God's. The sermon continued for a bit on a slight sidetrack, and then I returned to the question of the things that are God's. You see, I think in this teaching, that's the point that we tend to miss. We think that Rendering to Caesar, to the emperor, the things that are Caesar's means, yes, dutifully paying your taxes and keeping questions of social concern, economics, and politics right away from the things that are God's, which often misinterpreted as the merely spiritual. But that's actually a really Herodian position. (laughs) And a blind alley, the interesting question, what are the things that are God's? Well, I'll pick up there again. What are the things that are God's? Psalm 24 proclaims, The earth is the Lord's, and all that is in it, the world 
and those who live in it. There is, in that sense, nothing that is not God's, aside from the disastrous things that we have wrought through the misuse of God's good things. We do well to recall the verses from First Chronicles that are read at the point in the Book of Common Prayer communion liturgy where the table has been set and the offering is brought forward. And blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, forever and ever. All that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. All things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. Now one can read those verses very piously, maybe with your fingers lightly crossed behind your back. Oh, yes, Lord, I have been blessed by you. With these many blessings, house and car and investments and bank account, and now it's time to give you this thank offering to show you how appreciative I am. But that sort of piety really should stick in the throat of anyone who has spent any amount of time in the Bible. If you've done that, you can take the verse seriously and have it actually shape the way you own things, hold things, share things, and release things. Yes, you may well have earned the money in your bank account, or inherit it, or won it in a lottery for all I know. But those verses from First Chronicles are a reminder of how to think rightly about it. Money as such is not an evil, but rather in the words from First Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's the familiar bit, of course. But what follows is even more to the point. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. At that point, money has become mammon, a principality that lays hold of people and diminishes them, even as they accumulate more of it. To learn to rightly say, all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee, is to begin to be set free, to be liberated from mammon, to be liberated to hold what we do have with open hands, not tight fists. Giving in this way is, in fact, a spiritual discipline, and one that does our souls a whole lot of good, particularly in this consumption-driven world of ours. So yes, the preacher is finally back to focus on Consecration Sunday, namely the matter of your financial offering to support the life and ministry of this parish. The question, though, that we should all be asking this morning in a particular way, but always, is not what does the parish need, but rather what do I or my family, what do we need to give, need to give? What should be released, shared, put to work, given 
held more generously in order to keep being freed from the mammon-defined dictates of a consumer society that can be so terribly blind to something so basic as generosity. What could you or should you give, release, share, both here in your parish, but also beyond to those other ministries and organizations you've come to know as doing really good things in our world? That's the question to take home with you to ponder and to pray over, and not just for this day or this week, but as a steady, ongoing spiritual discipline. And it is very good work for the soul. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You see, I I think that's the interesting question when it comes to matters of stewardship. So often our tendency, because we are so conditioned by the culture and society in which we live, our tendency is to look and say, ah, here's the church as an organization, here's its budget, here are its needs, there's the shortfall, or there's the deficit, or there's the place where I would like to plug in, and then people make their giving decisions accordingly. What does the church really need? What work does the church really do? How, why should I support that? Rather than spinning that around and saying, what do I need to give? What do I need to give? This is the time of year, as we approach the end of the tax year, the time of year when those letters start to arrive, those email messages start to arrive from different ministries and organizations that I supported financially last year as a charitable donor. And I I kind of like when those arrive because they remind me, ah, yes, I haven't thought about that person or that work or that agency for a while. I need to think about it again. I get one of those notifications from somebody who is in campus ministry, and I'm always kind of thrilled to glimpse the people behind the little stories that she tells as she updates us and asks me to consider another year of support. See, I spent three years in campus chaplaincy. I know what that work is like. I know how good it can be, how hard it can be, And I think in these times, 20 years after I left campus ministry, a lot of the weight and strain that sits on the shoulders of students, well, it's just multiplied from where it was. And so a lot of the work that needs to be done with students rests on the shoulders of people in campus ministry. And I'm delighted to support that. But it's not even just a case of my delight in supporting. It's that spiritual practice of holding hands open, of working from a spirit of generosity, not hoarding, of escaping the trap of mammon when money and bank accounts and bottom lines become the determinative thing in our lives, the dictator that tells us what we value. Well, I like to be free from that. 
So at this time of the year, as you maybe consider those year-end matters, approach it from that angle. I'd invite you to do that. Maybe it's in support of St. Ben's. Maybe it's your own community church or good stuff happening in your own city, your own community, or remarkable work being done in other parts of the world that you know of. Well, get excited. Hold your hands open. And render to God the things that are God's. I'm Jamie Howison. Thanks for listening.